Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. The truth of the matter is, if you've got a brain and a blood supply, you're susceptible to mental illness. Simple as that. It does not discriminate. Kevin Humphreys was a military combat pilot and commander, who now is a civilian rescue helicopter pilot, flight instructor and examiner, has a powerful message to share with you about mental illness. Flying Black Hawk helicopters by the age of 21, Kevin went on to complete several deployments in East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. Plus, he did several humanitarian operations in Papua New Guinea. Towards the peak of his military career, he contemplated suicide and suffered a breakdown due to PTSD, depression, anxiety and bullying. Whilst a drive in the back streets of Baghdad brought on PTSD, it was the isolation of leadership and a workplace with a toxic bullying command environment that triggered Kevin's depression, anxiety and ultimately his breakdown and suicide ideation. Tune in as I talk to Kevin uh, and he takes us on the recovery roller coaster that involved the power of visualization and reuniting his heart with his head in what he describes as the longest journey one will ever take, but one that is well worth the effort. All right, welcome to Pebble in the Pond podcast. Joining me today is Kevin Humphreys. Welcome, Kevin. G'day, Sam. Good, good to be here, mate. Yeah, thanks very much for, for jumping on the, on the show with me and, and having a chat to, uh, to us and, and sharing a story with our listeners. Tell us, um, tell us about your background. Um, you know, to, I guess where you grew up to start with would be good. Yeah, right. Okay, we'll go back to the very beginning. <laughs> uh, so, uh, born and raised in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains in oh. New South Wales. Okay, and uh, grew up there. Went through high school and had a pretty regular working class uh, kind of upbringing there. Yep. And um, when I was uh, when I was about the height of the kitchen table, I saw some guys in green uniforms running through the bush on TV and I thought that was all right, I want to do that. And then uh, a few years later, I found myself looking up at rescue helicopters flying overhead and I thought that looks pretty cool, I want to go and do that. And then in year 11 at school, I found out the army had helicopters, so I was sold and uh, went off to join the army straight out of high school. This is from Katoomba? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so you went straight in the army, where, where, were you, where did you go for your academy? And yeah, training? so I went to the Royal Military College, Duntroon in Canberra. Did eight months there and then got selected for pilot's course. Uh, from there, went to uh, Point Cook in Victoria for six months, then the uh, Defence Force Helicopter School in Canberra for six months, and then to Oki for what's called the, the Regimental Officer Basic Course, which is learning how to apply the helicopter in a tactical sense. So the first two were just learning how to fly, fly. and then the third part was learning how to fly Blackhawk and then learning how to apply it with formation, low level, external load, hoist work, and uh, walked out of there at the ripe old age of 21 with the keys to a Blackhawk. Wow, I mean, that's something that 
kids typically dream of. I mean, that's uh, so you didn't have any history of the family being being in the army or any. Uh, it was just something that you just thought, wow, yeah. it, that's me. Yeah, it's, we don't know what happened, but um, <laughs> my grandfather um, was a, was a cook in World War Two. Oh, okay. He's the only military history we've got, and yet I'm one of four children, girl and three boys. All three of us boys ended up in the military. All of us in aviation related careers. Wow. Uh, and on my father's side, two cousins, uh, four cousins, two boys, two girls. Yeah. Uh, the two boys ended up in the military and both in aviation related careers as well. Something about Katoomba. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what it is, but, uh, but but then the next generation, no one's in the military and no one's doing anything with aviation. So it was just this slice, wow. uh, horizontal slice. Amazing. That's interesting. Mm. So 21, uh, you had the keys to the Black Hawk. What, what, what were you doing then? Tell me about what happened. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was pretty much the beginning of the boys' own adventure. Uh, yeah. Flying all around Australia and various parts of the world. Um, you know, I uh, deployed to Papua New Guinea for drought relief in 97 and 98. Um, uh, then East Timor in 99, 2000, 2001, Iraq 2003. And Afghanistan in 2005, 6, 7 and 8 uh, between the Black Hawk and the Chinook helicopter that I flew as well. So uh, so if we go back a little bit. So East Timor, um, well, before that, obviously, was Papua New Guinea. Mm. Um, tell us about the, the relief that you're doing there. Yeah, so uh, it's called Op Please Dry, Plenty Dry or Drought. Yep. And uh, they were in the middle of a, of a drought and there was a you know, real shortage of food. Uh, being able to be produced. So the Australian Defence Force and AusAid, a combined mission, went up there and uh, had Blackhawks and, uh, and Chinooks, uh, Hercules and a few other aircraft uh, doing food supply runs with you know either 10 or 20 kilo bags of uh, flour, rice, oil, um, delivering to various villages all throughout the uh, all throughout the country, which was just some of the most incredible flying you can do and thankfully we used to go up there every year to do training in the high altitude anyway yeah. so it was an area that we were reasonably familiar with extremely. but then to go up and do something meaningful up yeah. there was was really great extremely mountainous and and i mean a lot of isolated communities i would imagine mm. yeah absolutely and um yeah i've got to say stood us in good stead for when we ended up in afghanistan um, lots of mountains over there as well, but uh, not much vegetation to go with it, mainly rocks, but, uh, but still lots of, lots of mountains to deal with. And I wonder if we'll do that for our drought in Australia. That's uh, <laughs> out there at the moment. I mean, probably a few farmers out there wishing they'd probably uh, get oh, a few things, chop I, it into them, probably water. I reckon so. Uh, but uh, that's really interesting. So, so Papua New Guinea, so that was a, a really good experience for you, mm. uh, a meaningful um, experience that, that gave you a bit of pride i guess as well with what you were doing um in in the mission up there and then you were at east timor yep this was 90 99 99 uh, and then 2000 2001 so and what was that experience like uh yeah so that was uh that was good i, I call east timor a good proving ground for what we were doing operationally tactically uh, there were whilst in the very early days there were a few skirmishes um that that i wasn't involved with and had very limited aviation involvement um, the ma vast majority of the time over there saw no enemy engagements with um, with uh, the helicopters. Um, but again, it was very mountainous terrain, tropical terrain, hot. Mm. Uh, so a number of technical challenges to do with flying the aircraft. So 
so whilst we were there providing integral support to the Australian soldiers on the ground, uh, particularly through their medical evacuation, so any time of the day or night, if they were in trouble, we could get them out of trouble. And, uh, but it was also a great environment for us to prove our, our tactics. Tell me how important that was from going to that, from, from learning the chopper, but to then the tactical side of it. I mean, is it, uh, there's a big difference, I assume. Oh, there's a massive difference. Uh, pretty, much, pretty much anybody can learn how to fly. They've, they've taught, um, literally taught a monkey how to fly. Uh, it's by doing it in the, in the military context, uh, you need to be able to rapidly evolve, understand or experience the situation, yeah. analyze it assess, it, assess it, and then come up with a different plan next time to do it better, or at least not do what didn't work last time. Uh, and that's one of the differences when it comes to military aviation. Uh, so you need to be able to rapidly evolve. Yeah. Was that was that part of the job that you really enjoyed, like the, that that learning, that third learning, where you you got to apply these tactics and? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So applying the, the helicopter tactically uh, is some of the best flying that any any pilot could ever hope to do. Yeah. And uh, and you know down we're talking fifty feet above the trees at two hundred and fifty kilometres an hour um, with with another aircraft, you know, barely you know thirty metres away from you. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it really gets the blood pumping. But after you've done it half a dozen, a dozen, twenty, a hundred times, it becomes normal. And uh, and that's where one of the real threats comes in is because you normalise something that to the average person is not normal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it's about the the training and the the overall systems that are put in place to allow you to do that safely. How did you rate the training side of things when you were going through? Was it was it really good? Oh, it's arguably the best pilot training course in the world. Is that right? Uh, and I don't say that out of yeah. uh, ego. It, 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 it is renowned as one of the best training courses in the world yeah. and therefore one of the hardest. When I went through, it had a 70% failure rate. Wow. Um, and it was true to its word on my course. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really amazing and astonishing, I guess. But it's, but it's really important you, you get that right because mm. you don't just let anyone up there doing that stuff no too. no that's right and i mean the, the good thing these days is that they've uh the, they the, the military has learned about just how high a failure rate it is and how expensive it is to get someone three quarters of the way through a course and then not mm. succeed spent all that money and then they don't get through it's not to say that you lower the standard it's what you do at the front end to work out earlier who's not going to make it at the back end so there's more more investment up front to better identify candidates who have a higher chance of success at the back end. So uh, East Timor, plenty of opportunity to fly and, and improve on own skills. Mm. Uh, then went to went, then went to Iraq. Iraq, yeah. In which year was this? Yeah, 2003. Yeah. Okay. So um, so the Chinooks were deployed over there to support the special forces. Um, and when I say to Iraq, we actually didn't deploy to Iraq. Iraq's just the easy way because that's where the deployment, generally speaking, was to. Uh, we were in a, a country just outside of Iraq, um, and uh, and then once Baghdad fell, um, I stepped up into Iraq for reconnaissance with the special forces team because we were going to put the Chinooks with uh, with a small ground force element into Baghdad to support the diplomatic mission. Uh, but as quickly as it was decided that we would do that, it was then decided that we wouldn't, and so excuse me, then the aircraft were uh, were pulled out and, and sent home. So, yeah. That's, How that's long were you over there for 
for a year. Uh, no, that, that was only a couple of months. And this okay. is the thing when it comes to aviation deployments, um, and it's something I, I should probably uh, clarify. You know, I've been deployed eight, nine times, but some of the deployments are literally only a few weeks. Okay. Other ones are six months or so. Um, and so it varies up and down all the time. And, um, and whilst that's significant for the individual, um, interestingly for the families, it makes no difference. Um, apart from the fact you're away from six, working home for six months or two weeks, um, the family has to go through the withdrawal of you going away to somewhere dangerous. Um, and that has its own impact. Yeah, and something I definitely want to touch on, uh, because that is a big part of serving in the military, from, from what I understand. But uh, so okay, so you, so and then the shorter the shorter amount of time for service for those deployments, not is it related because you get the job done within a shorter time, or because you rotate with other pilots? How is that? Yeah, so it, it totally depends, and it's evolved over time. Um, so. Yeah, I've had deployments literally in 2008. My last deployment was uh, two and a half weeks because my job there was to go in and run the ruler over the Chinook organization that was in Afghanistan at the time to effectively sign them off to be ready to operate. Um, So it was a a governance role, if you like. Um, In 2007, I was there for three months uh, because uh, that command stint for me was chopped in half for various reasons. Another guy did half of it and I did the second half okay. and then packed it up and brought it home. So it just depends on the role you're going into. So Afghanistan, you were there for two different, two, on two different occasions? Yeah, four different occasions. Okay. One was the reconnaissance in the first place, yep. just to look at it all bare bones and, and then come home and prepare the squadron to deploy for the longer deployments. Okay. So, and and how, was, how was that experience? Um, it was, it was the best and the worst. It was uh, the highs and the lows. It was everything you can possibly experience um, in one go. Um, there were, uh, you know, there were there were there were rockets um, landing and near my bedroom and shredding that. There were rockets getting fired at aircraft. There were bullets going at aircraft um, on some days, but the vast majority of days there were no bullets. There were no rockets that we were aware of anyway, um, and. Um, you know, and, and some days there was really nothing happening. It was as you know boring as. Yeah. And then there's other days when there's all sorts of things going on, and you, you know, there's just not not enough hours in the day. Um, there's there's just every element of uh, of life of highs and lows going on. So when you finally got to the stage of of combat, uh, noticing the journey that it's taken to get to that point when you're a kid. Was it, how did the experience vary to what you thought to what it was? Uh, was it everything that you wanted and, and thought it would be, or was it was it beyond what you thought it would be, or, or was it, um, how did you find it? Yeah, you know, no one's ever asked me that question before. And it's, it's interesting. I, I, would, I would say that in many ways I, in many ways, it lived up to my expectations. Um, there are that said, though, in a number of ways, as weird as it may sound, and as much as we train for war all the time in the army, um, in many ways, I actually didn't have that many expectations. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I can I can thankfully say that I never copped around copped rounds on the helicopter. Um, and so certainly that is something that I had imagined. So I never I never got to uh, put that into practice or, or sorry, um, experience what that was really like. Thankfully, you know, I, I'm happy to say that was the case. I was going to say that'd be the fearful side of it. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. So, you know, what's it going to sound like? Am I going to hear it? Yeah. Um, indeed, I, I know that when bullets are whizzing past outside and you're sitting in a running helicopter, you can't hear them. Um, unless they're close enough, and thankfully that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, how how am I going to uh, react? Will I react in the ways I do? Um, certainly, when it comes to that side of it, I believe I did act in the way that I had expected myself to act. Um, and, and so, and it was um, it was a actually a calm and deliberate process. It, yeah. it, it wasn't, and, and instinctive as well. So yeah. as much as it was deliberate, it was instinctive. But in reflection, I go, yeah, that's that's what we would have done. It was the training that kicked in. It's what you were trained to do. Because yeah. yeah, it's just intriguing to know, because obviously sometimes uh, troops and, and um, uh, emergency services, get, I mean, they go through their life training for a situation and they get there. And then I'm just always interested to see, well, geez, it was, it was everything I wanted or it was scary as, mm. or a bit of everything and and it was or we realized well maybe this isn't for me and and uh, it's not really what i wanted to do yeah yeah i mean in, indeed you know one of the missions that we came back from um uh which was arguably the, the bishop, biggest mission we were involved with um and uh you know going in picking up 70 70 guys under fire and getting them out safely yeah and uh you know one of the pilots came back after that and said i didn't sign up for this no way, it's not, well, mate, we're in the middle of a war zone. It's a bit late to say that now. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. but you know, he, he didn't hang up the helmet there and then either. No. He went back out again the next day. Yeah. Um, so. Was that Afghanistan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, to be part of a successful mission like that, I mean, there'd be enormous sense of pride, wouldn't there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that uh, pride is one of the, the biggest factors in the downfall when we talk about mental illness, mm. having that huge, huge level of pride in what you achieve in a war zone and being part of the team that achieves whatever that is, um, is actually one of the biggest elements in the downfall when guys come home because the the opposite of pride is shame. And uh, and we could, we could go off on another tack and, and start talking about pride and shame, but. Um, I think particularly for, for proud people, for people who wear a uniform, more so for people who have a fair bit of self-identity in the uniform and in the mm. job that they did, um, they are very susceptible to to a pride, what I call a pride-based downfall. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to touch on the identity side of things because it's a big thing I know that you speak about. But also, if we start and just look at the other side of, of being in the, in the military and being part of the defence, What's what's the what's the part that doesn't get spoken about often? What's what's the darker side of it that's that people don't feel like they're going to be a part of when they sign up for it? What, can you tell us a little bit about that and your journey in in defence? Yeah, well, in your experience, yeah, in defence. Um, so for everything I'm about to say, I I think things are better now, uh, given that it was ten to fifteen years ago for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it is. I'm I'm quietly optimistic that it is. I'm told by some people that it is. Yes. Um, 
But I'd say one of the, the biggest things uh, is it's not what happens to people, it's how they are treated by the organisation for what impacts them most. Uh, and interestingly, that's come out in some of the research that uh, has come out in, in the conference in the last two days as yeah. well. Um, and I was quite surprised that someone's actually looking at that research. Uh, and so that is that people can go through traumatic events, they can go through various um, things that cause them stress, um, but the event necessarily isn't the thing that brings them undone or brings them unstitched. Uh, it's the way they are treated around that event or because of that event that ultimately brings them undone. And I know that was the case for me. Um, as, I, as I say, the, the rockets, the cliff edges, the bullets, whatever else, they, I didn't like them very much, but they didn't impact me that much. They, I, I wasn't really phased by them. Um, I don't say that out of ego or bravado, it's just that was a, that was a fact. Um, but what impacted me was a, a really toxic command environment. Uh, what impacted me was workplace bullying uh, and those kinds of things that, you know, as a guy in his mid-30s, like, does this really exist? Seriously? Um, and I, I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know, you know, what to say. Too embarrassed that I, as an adult, would be impacted in this way. So, so that's a, so. If we is this after Afghanistan or is this during your service? Or what? Uh, so there was a period after uh, Iraq, two thousand and three, uh, and and then and then that that waned because it's there's a bunch of postings that happen every couple of years. So you come in yeah. contact with people and then you go out of contact and you go to a new unit and then a different okay. unit. Um, so um, so yeah, something that can either be really intense for a period of time um, or can just be fleeting and then you end up in a different unit. And, and even though the policies are the same for the big organisation, the way those policies are being enacted by individuals is, the, is what comes unstuck. That's you know, when, when an individual is getting treated uh, poorly by someone else. So what you're saying is even after Iraq, uh, you came home and then it wasn't what you saw wasn't wasn't an event that was triggering for you for, for stress or for depression. Mm. It was more the way you were treated by superiors, yeah, or, or work, work colleagues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, there was an event driving in the back streets of, of Baghdad um, that actually triggered post traumatic stress for me. Um, but but that event was only one of the things that I ended up having nightmares about. It's only one of the things I ended up screaming out in the middle of the night about. Um, so, and and eventually, um, I'm actually in remission from post-traumatic stress. I'm, I'm very happy to say, um, you know, eventually that element, the back streets of Baghdad, went away for me, um, but the other piece didn't. It's so interesting. You spent all your time and service flying choppers, and it was through driving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I won't go into all the details here, no. but, but but in essence, I was completely, utterly out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Completely, utterly um, a feeling of hopeless, not hope, of helplessness for me to um, fix or understand the situation that I was in. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, anyway, yeah. but yeah, I could fly over the top of that same scene. That wouldn't have been a problem, as I did in Afghanistan you know, many times, but, but, uh, but driving through it, Wow. Um, yeah, brought me unstuck. So, uh, so 
the experience of what was your experience around the the bullying and, and that sort of thing? Was it the fact that uh, you were told, you know, what to do and, and you didn't like what they were saying or the way they were saying it, or was it the way they were treating and speaking down to you? Was it? Um, was a a number of things, and I I won't go into all the not the detail. I won't go into the level. detail here, but um, but it was a it was a number of of different elements yeah. um, uh, from one or two key individuals who yeah. were my bosses and um uh and and interestingly uh you know so so some decisions were being made that um as arguably the uh, arguably the guy with the most operational experience of what those decisions were going to mean translated onto the ground in afghanistan uh i i felt that they were the wrong decisions yeah. and um uh and i stated that in a meeting, uh, you know, this is one occasion, um, as an example, stated that yeah. in a meeting that, that that was the case, and um, uh, you know, and then was excluded, and um, and uh, yeah, yeah, like a like a three year old, yeah. and um, and then you know, after the meeting, plenty of other people came out and said, "Kev, well done, mate. Yeah, you know, I'm with you. I'm with you. They shouldn't be doing that." Well, I said, "Well, mate, how about you say well, something?" Where were you? Where were you going back? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, oh no, I, I, I couldn't do that. So well, hang on a second, mate. Yeah, uh, this this isn't how it works. Leaving it um, And um, anyway, so that, that's that's one simple little example. Yeah. But there were a number of elements of of exclusion um, yeah. of uh, of decisions being made that I I I um, I couldn't sign up to. And the final straw was um, yeah when I confronted the individual. Um, about it, and, um, and and he just basically laughed in my face, and uh, so there was no chance at communication to try and understand what was yeah. going on at all. Um, it was just this is my way of doing business. You don't like it? Take off. There's the door. Yeah. And so was that what led to you to triggering your experience of depression? No, depression was there well before this. That was that event there of. Uh, you don't like it, there's the door. Uh, that was the last interaction I had with anybody from work prior to me uh, having my breakdown and contemplating suicide for the, I won't say for the last time, but that was yeah. the, the crescendo, so to speak. So where do you think the depression started? Um, the depression came out of um, Iraq, the situation in 2003, okay. whereas the when I had the breakdown was 2008. Okay. Um, so there was my... You know, there was five years of undiagnosed PTSD and, and depression in there. Um, and even though I was having nightmares and screaming in the middle of the night and whatever else, um, I wasn't dare going to see anybody about it because being messed in the head was career termination in the ADF back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. Um, thankfully, it's a different story these days. Um, yeah. But any hint of it back then was you're gone. You're a liability. Isn't that interesting? Like that that's how... Yeah, that's... And then do you think that's a reason why many others wouldn't have spoken up as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, for me, uh, as a pilot as well, it was doubly impactful because not only could I lose my career in the Army, but I might not be able to fly again either. So that's my, that's my livelihood. And, um, and that's, that's my passion and, as well as, you know, my profession. So, um, yeah, so there was potentially a, a double whammy there uh, because I, I had no idea of what having 
a mental illness meant in the civilian world when it came to flying. Did you know, did you consciously know that you had it at that time? No. Or, or looking back, you, you know all the signs were that? Correct. Okay. Correct. It's 2020 hindsight yeah. that I can look back and go, oh, yeah, duh. Um, but at the time... Um, you just thought it was normal? I just I just thought it was normal. Or is is this normal? But I, none, of, none of the other guys at work are talking about having nightmares or this or that or whatever, so I just must be the only idiot that this is a this is happening to. So I'll just have another beer tonight and that'll help me go to sleep. Um, so some of the symptoms you were experiencing were broken sleep, anger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, severe moodiness and irritability. Yeah. Um, fluctuations in the mood as well. So, yeah. you know, happy one minute or at least putting on a facade of being happy and then, uh, and then, you know, yeah. a little... I, I never cried at that stage. Um, it wasn't until... can't remember now but it wasn't until years later um, mm. that I, I basically I couldn't back hold back the tears any mm. longer really uh, so you were you were working uh, from 03 to uh, 07 five years say with um, with undiagnosed I guess depression mm. uh, at that point in time uh, lack support I guess in a professional basis with some of the, your superiors uh, in 2007. What, what then happened after that? Um, so 2007 was... Um, uh, you had the challenges right. with the toxic work environment. Yeah, yeah. And where it came to a head was... Um, so 2006, the deployment had gone uh, pretty well. Um, you know, I'd come out of there and definitely worked myself to the bone. But um, And there, whilst there were a number of frustrations overall, it, it all went reasonably well. Um, 2007, though, during the deployment, I excuse me, I um, I found myself um, debriefing a, a junior officer and realised that they weren't looking at my face anymore. They were looking at my hands, and my hands. I looked down, and they were just shaking, just uncontrolled. I tried when I saw them shaking. I tried to stop them shaking, and it didn't work. And um, and I was oh crap, the the game's well and truly up. Um, and so on coming out of uh, Afghanistan, whenever the military, uh, the, the Australian military anyway, comes out of an operational theatre, they go through psychological screening. Yeah. And, um, uh, and it's really up to the individual how truthful they are yeah. with that screening. And um, so you could easily go through that mask and just. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as I did in 2008 um, when, I, when I went over there just for that very short two week period. And, um, but yeah, I came out and I actually said, I, this happened and this is a little bit of the background, but I need to see somebody. And, um, so unfortunately it took me three months to get to see a psychologist after that point, even though I'd actually asked to see one. So what year was this? 07. 07. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you, you answered the test honestly and openly, yeah. uh, they identified that you had some, tr- some struggles. Some, some struggles, yeah. Yep. And then they then you asked for, for some help and it took three months for someone to actually yep. be in contact with you. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, and unfortunately, um, the individual that I saw, the psychologist, was um, was very young, not much life experience. And I get it, everybody's got to start somewhere. Uh, but unfortunately, it was absolutely the wrong person for me. And, uh, and 
particularly when after I'd had two or three sessions and things weren't going particularly well. Um, and then uh, my wife came into one of the sessions with me and the, um, the psychologist, um, she, she was trying to have a joke. I appreciate she was trying to have a joke, but it did not land when she describes me literally, quote, as the excrement at the bottom of a bucket. It's like, uh, I think we're done. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that I'm coming back here. Um, and uh, so that was, at that stage was when I basically decided I was going to take care of myself by hitting the booze, yeah. numbing it out, et cetera, et cetera. And so you mentioned your wife. Uh, during even the lead up five years, of, did she experience, did she, uh, was she conscious to some of the, fluctuations and, and the erratic behaviors and yeah absolutely she um you know she, she was lying next to me in the middle of the night when i'm yeah. screaming and crying um and so she knew at various times that something was going on and um uh and in in 2007 she she absolutely knew that something was up and indeed i had told her that i put my hand up coming out of afghanistan so she was aware that i was at least now seeking help yeah. Um, and she could also see it was just a roller coaster of. I mean, I was a. I wasn't a nice guy. Let's yeah. put it that way. I wasn't a nice guy. Yeah. Um, so it was a, a roller coaster of, of moods and behaviour and all that sort of crap at home. And um, uh, and yeah, 2007 rolled into 2008, and uh, and then yeah, I got told that I was going back to Afghanistan to sign off the next detachment because in the military. And I don't know if this has changed or to what extent, um, but the medical system works um, outside of the command chain. So if you go and see a psychologist or go and see the doctor, your boss doesn't know about it unless you end up telling them or unless you aren't coming to work the next day. That's how it used to be? Uh, that's certainly how it used to okay. be. Um, Understand. I, I believe it's still like that, but I don't know if it's... Okay. Being modified at all. So when you walked out on your appointment, then with that psychologist, uh, you then obviously your boss didn't know about what was going on. No, no, at that idea. point. No, and idea. so then that's when you were redeployed. Yeah, that's right. So that was the towards the end of two thousand and seven, um, and then you know a bit of leave over Christmas, whatever else, come back mm. to work, and um, things really not uh, not improving at all because I'm not getting any help from anybody. Yeah. And um, matter of fact, my boss saw my wife. Um, just bumped into her at the Woolies or you know the shops, mm. and uh, and he he said to her how I'm going to go back to Afghanistan for for a couple of weeks, and uh, anyway yeah she said over my dead body, she said you don't understand, and um, but anyway he he yes he didn't understand because he didn't know he didn't know what was happening in the medical chain rightly so, um, but at the same time they certainly didn't take the time to attempt to understand either. And mm. that comes back to just understanding your troops, understanding mm. the, your staff and where they're coming from, what's going on for them outside of what happens around the board table. So he got his way, you ended up then going back over to Afghanistan yep. uh, for a couple of weeks. Mm. Uh, and then and then you came back and after that debrief, uh, yep. you so, then mastered it. Yeah, so mastered it yep. totally. Um, went in there, yep, everything was fine. Tick, 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 walk, walk through. Um, which was really disappointing to see that it could be so easily fooled mm. to be able to, to get through. But 
you know, to be fair, there's only so much that the psychologist can do and ask in order to elicit a, a, a um, honest response from people as well. And that, and you see that in everyday life. And that's why one of the reasons why, you know, just suicide generally um, is quite often very, very hard to spot because people will mask it very easily, um, yeah. very successfully. So. So you, you got your way through, and this is a face-to-face -face interview with a psychologist. Yeah, that yeah, that's right. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you, you got through that, and then, uh, and then that was the last time you you were deployed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and then um, oh, ballpark a month or so. I really can't remember actually, but let's let's call it a month or so. Um, from there, few you know the meetings and bullying issues at work um, were. Um, because you're still going into work, but just that you weren't. Correct. Just, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Still part of it. Yeah. So I was still working five days a week, work and uh, toxic yeah. workplace, just not handling it well, and um, and you know, drinking way too much every day of the week, whatever time of the of the afternoon. I didn't drink in the mornings, but certainly by the you know, get home in the afternoon and straight into it, and I'll drink whatever I could find in the cupboards, and um, um, you know, few super short really crap sleep, um, not doing any exercise, you know, doing, doing exactly everything wrong um, to maintain a healthy lifestyle and exactly everything right to destroy your physical and mental health. And, um, and anyway, yeah, and then uh, in late May 2008. Um, uh, you returned to take what? Yeah, well, got to the point where I thought, yeah, today's, today's gonna be it. Um, and um, yeah, I we were doing some paving around the pool, and um, you know, square pavers, rectangle area can't be that hard, right? Um, but um, anyway, I it, it just things were just not working for yeah. me, and and self talk, telling myself how much of an idiot I was. Um, and the more I told myself that, the, the weaker I got, the worse job I did. Yeah. And so it became this self-perpetuating cycle until mm. I, I finally collapsed. And yeah. um, rather than go through with yeah. what it was that I was thinking. And so is, is that the point where, did your wife see you? Did you go get help? Is it, you just said, this is it, I've got to go see someone voluntary? Nah, so I was, I was literally a shaking, convulsing, incoherent mess on the floor. I, I, I'd ceased functioning mm. apart from breathing. Um, I'd pretty much ceased functioning at that point. And, um, uh, and so my wife um, came out and you know, saw me there and um, said, you know, do you want me to call uh, Martin and, uh, and Jeff, you know, the, the unit psychologist and the, and the doctor? And you know, I had their numbers in my phone, but I was so embarrassed and felt ashamed and confused um, that I'd, I'd really honestly thought that dying was a better option than calling them yeah, and getting help. They were different to the people you went to, the psychologists you went to Correct. see? Correct. Okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, okay. they, they were different. Yeah, Because I worked with these guys, they weren't allowed to treat me in the first instance. Uh, right. So, uh, and indeed, Martin, you know, he's an organisational psychologist, not a clinical psychologist. But I tell you what, um, he knows a damn sight more than a whole bunch of clinical psychologists that I've come across. Yeah, he's brilliant. So, so tell us. So then you went through um, 
you went through Martin? Um, um, again, I worked with them, so they couldn't yeah. treat me. Uh, but okay. what they could do is just come and do the initial yep. triage settle, yeah. and uh, and then from there refer me on to the military hospital uh, for me to be treated. Now, they asked me one, uh, we spoke for a couple of hours and, and one of the questions they asked me, I've later found out, was um, one of the key determining factors on whether I became an inpatient or an outpatient, whether I was going to be admitted or not. Um, and, and that was if I had a plan to kill myself. And, and I answered very honestly, no, um, even though that was what I was contemplating doing just a couple of hours earlier. Yeah. Um, in, my, in my way of thinking, whilst I had a, a place in a way mapped out with a couple of different options, mm. um, I didn't have a date and a time scheduled in the calendar to do it. Okay. And so my very regimented ill mind, I was still only thinking about it. I didn't actually have a plan. Mm. And um, yeah, I now know that's a very wrong way of looking at it. I absolutely had a plan. Um, so I was admitted as an outpatient to the military hospital in Brisbane and um, and then from there um, treated by psychiatrists, psychologists, GP, etc, etc. And, and how, how long was that journey that, uh, that you were? Um, so it was, it was nine months until I got back to work and, um, and it was a, a continuation of the roller coaster. Um, in in a lot of ways, the roller coaster got a hell of a lot worse before it got better, mm. um, and and that's because I didn't have to put on the brave face at work. I didn't have to try to mask anything now. Um, I I could just be woe is me, depressed, anxious, yeah. crying, Kev, yeah. um, which I didn't like, but I didn't give a crap at that stage. Um, and and yeah, so eventually managed to get through that phase, um, and and get to the point of starting to realise that I needed to get healthy again. Yeah. So psychology, psychiatrist, you were doing that on and off for nine months. Yep. Uh, and then w were you doing any other things uh, in addition to that? Was it was it about sleep patterns? And um, meditation, yoga. Yeah, so there, there was nothing in there that was um, what some people call alternative. So I wasn't looking at meditation, wasn't looking at um, at mindfulness. Uh, to a tiny degree, there was some mindfulness in there. Um, it was really basic. Turn up for your appointment. Turn up for your appointment. What are you eating? And just actually eating three squares a day, cutting back on the grog and getting some sleep. Um, and then starting on a little bit of exercise. Like it was really basic at the start. Um, and then from there that, you know, developed a little by little um, as well. But, but yeah, it's only been in the last few years that I've really found you know, mindfulness and meditation and, yeah. and yoga and other things. Not that I practice them anywhere near as much as I should, yeah. Um, but yeah, at the time it was very, very basic. So nine months uh, and then after that you went back to work? Yeah. So. I um, went back on a return to work program, uh, but it was only two days a week. And, um, and it's a standard thing that happens to slowly reintegrate into the workplace. Um, there were a bunch of things happening, um, aside from, from that, which was causing a bit of grief, um, at work, but I went back to work two days a week into a different unit mm -hmm. compared to the one that I was in. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and when I went back to work, I, 
walking in there, you know, fairly senior officer, no cast, no limp, no sling, wondering what's everyone going to be saying about me, you know, who's the crackpot, blah, blah, blah. Um, fact is there were two types of people, those who cared and those who really didn't care. And my paranoia was far worse than the reality of going back into the workplace. Yeah. Um, and uh, the way my manager treated me when I went back there, a fellow by the name of Peter Clay, who was just brilliant. And um, he he called me into the office and, and said, Kev, I know you're on a return to work plan for two days a week. Uh, I don't need to know why you're, you're only here for two days a week. I just need to know how many days I can expect to see you here. And, uh, and you need to know that you're an officer of a certain rank. And for those two days a week, I expect you to produce the goods commensurate of that rank. And, um, and that to me was just brilliant. I was actually going to be treated like a human being, like an officer, yeah. uh, instead of Kev, the special project. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, as I was walking out the door, he said, Kev, one more thing you need to know about me. And I stopped and turned around and he said, I'll never give you sympathy, but I'll always give you empathy. Mm. And uh, and that to me was just gold, and uh, and a, a and a textbook example of the type of conversation yeah. that a manager should have with uh, with a person coming back to work. Wow, that's powerful. Mm. That's really powerful. So the the thing that's that's really interesting um, about that, I guess, because you had it in your mind that if you did tell someone about what you were going through, that you'd be finished, no more flying, and that's it. The reality was that there, there wasn't a way for you to work through it and then come back and return to work and continue to be able to do your job. Is that correct? Uh, close. Okay. And, uh, and this is where, uh, you know, the same policies, the exact same policies applied throughout the army. Uh, but the unit I went back to uh, had a different boss to the unit I just came from. And uh, whilst I, we haven't spoken about it, about the visualization and the $6 million man, but um, whilst I was back to being functional and, and, and getting on with life again, and I had a very empathic boss who was prepared to give me a go and expect me to produce the goods in return, um, I was quite literally labeled as damaged goods over on the aviation side of the army. And, uh, and when it came up in conversation um, about me and certain jobs, then the, the phrase was that nobody buys damaged goods. So uh, unfortunately, my career path in aviation, at least in the short to medium term, was toast okay. because of individuals over there. Um, and whilst I- could, From the old unit. From the old unit, that's okay. right. But, uh, but they were, to say they were influential in aviation career paths was an understatement. Yeah, so, uh, okay. so the short to medium term for me as an aviation officer just wasn't viable there anymore. Yeah, because they knew what happened. Yeah, they were part of what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so, so it wasn't. So you got to go back to work, even though it wasn't uh, you weren't able to be in the aviation mm. part of it. Yeah. Did you? Uh, did it fulfil you? Did, did you feel like you were? This is good. This is. I'm back. I've got a boss that's actually. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. Telling sure. me the things I want to hear. Yeah, short answer is it did. Absolutely. Um, you know I. I, I joined the army as an 18-year-old wanting to serve. Um, and, and I knew I'd never be able to fly forever. Whilst I love flying, I don't live for flying. Um, so I knew I wouldn't be able to fly together uh, forever, but I knew that I still had one or two postings left for my rank and experience level and all the rest of it in a flying role. Okay. Um, 
but there is only a finite window of opportunity for that to happen. And basically it was in the next three years. So, um, so if I wasn't going into those roles because I was labeled as damaged goods, um, then I had to ask myself seriously whether or not I was gonna stay in the army not being able to do the pinnacle jobs that mm. I wanted True. to do. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, yes, there's plenty of other fulfilling roles in the army and plenty of other um, uh, incredible, you know, bosses to work for. Um, but uh, as I was going through the, do I, what do I do? Do I stay, do I go? Um, I actually got offered a job um, with a search and rescue organization um, Basically, my dream job got offered to me, and uh, with a literally, it was a Thursday afternoon, I think it was, and I said, um, "You need to be in Darwin on Monday." It's like, ah, oh, crap! What wow. do I do now? Do I? So, how long was this after you went back to work that you got offered this job? About three or four months. Okay, so you're back with your new boss. He was good. You were starting to do more physical exercise, eating right, yeah, feeling absolutely. a bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then sleep was better. Yeah. And then you got offered a job with search and rescue. Yeah, correct. And uh, and it was the the my dream initial mm. jump into the civilian industry job. You know, to be a you know single pilot, aircraft captain, um, an instructor, yeah. an examiner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, yeah. So you moved to to Darwin. Yeah. No. So I stayed in Brisbane okay. and then started flying, fly out effectively. Okay. Two weeks on, two weeks off out of Darwin. At, um, yeah, and did some consulting work and, and other bits and pieces. So things were, were very, very busy um, there. What was it like to get your get your hands back on the on the chopper? Oh, it was brilliant. Yeah. But but you know, I went from flying a Chinook, which weighs you know twenty three, twenty four ton, um, and has a a, a road ahead that has a little bit of a response time yeah. to uh, an aircraft called a BK one one seven, which weighs three ton wow. uh, with an incredibly responsive rotor head um, you know and the Chinook's got wheels and this thing's got skids and uh. um, so and and it was a single pilot environment whereas everything I'd done up to that time was two pilots um, so totally totally different environment um, so it just gave me another hundred things to focus on challenge achieve and you know be, become a master at basically uh, and uh, and it was an incredible challenge the organization again it was an organization who um so careful like new south wales is the organization yeah. and, and i'll forever sing their praises yeah. too um for for giving me the shot that's but, great um, yeah but they really they also knew how to look after their people yeah didn't mean that people got free rides yeah it meant that they actually were in tune with their people Yep. and understood how to get the best out of them and for the organisation. And that's what you believe was not missing, but was really inconsistent in your experience in in the army. Yeah, one of one yeah. of the things here. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so how how did the depression and the PTSD go from there? I mean, did it subside? Um, yeah. So. Um, you're still getting so the short treatment. answer is uh yeah so still still getting treatment yep. um the ptsd had um you know basically subsided still came and went every now and then and and indeed still to this day 
there is one particular road in Brisbane where if I drive down there at night time, I get the shivers up my back. Yeah, right. Um, and, um, but it in the main was, was gone. Um, the depression and the anxiety um, were, I, I, I won't say they were gone, but I was, I was now aware of my triggers. I was now aware of what to look out for. I, was, I, I had a better understanding of my early warning signs, what was going on. I knew that sleep was essential. I knew that um, a, a half reasonable, consistent diet was essential. Uh, so I knew how to better prepare my body to be better in the first place. So you had the awareness you had the, of the triggers, the education and the management of mm. what you can do yep. to do that. Yeah, that's right. And tell me, did you start using the visualization techniques then? Uh, so the visualization techniques were actually part of the initial nine month recovery. Yeah. And um, uh, and I, you know, I didn't didn't consciously set out for it to happen this way. It just kind of evolved. But during the during the recovery, um, I'm a fairly visual guy, and so I, um, I I I got this phrase. My mind got me into this. My mind will get me out of it. And and started saying that to myself again and again, and, and that was good, but I needed something more visual and, and then remembered the $6 million man. And, um, and for those who are maybe too young to, to know him, he was a, uh, an astronaut. It was a TV show. He was an astronaut in the, in the 80s or so, um, and he was involved in a horrific accident and he should have died, but they rebuilt him with bionic technology. And, um, and the, the catch cry for the, the show was that they have the technology they can rebuild him, make him better, stronger, faster than ever before. And and I loved that show when I was a teenager. And so I quite literally, visually in my head, would put my head on his body um, and see myself as him running when I went for a run or see myself as him when I was sitting in the psychiatrist's waiting room or the psychologist's waiting room or getting an ice cream with the kids or whatever. And I would repeat that phrase to myself again and again and again and again. I lost count. Um, um, I, I had the technology. I can rebuild me. I can make me better, faster, stronger than ever before. I can rebuild my brain. And uh, and that's what I set about doing. And uh, um, and it's interesting because looking back, as a, as a student on pilot's course, we are taught visualisation to be able to um, fly a training flight prior to sitting in the cockpit. Um, to have a better chance of success when we get there. And, you know, you look at any elite athlete, elite sports person, whether they are shooters or tennis players or, or whatever the case may be, they will visualise um, themselves with certain plays mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. Yeah. It's how elite performers train. Uh, and, and, yeah, un, unknowingly, here I was doing it for myself um, as part of my recovery. So you were visualising that, or because you're also watching something, weren't you? Uh, so at that stage, that was just visualising, just, visual, okay. just looking at it in my mind. Okay. And um, what I've, um, you know, fast forward to the last eighteen months, and uh, and a lady, Regina Rollison, has developed a uh, a film, a first person perspective film that um, is reasonably immersive, to put you into a situation. Um, where you essentially um, increase the level of arousal, the state of arousal in your mind, um, whilst maintaining a totally safe place and a safe state um, in order to challenge your perceptions around 
your belief system and to literally rewire your brain in exactly the same way that visualizations work for before you're training flight, doing a, you know, a simulation, a simulation or, or whatever. Um, yeah, so these self-empowerment cinematography, cinematography films are, are really, really incredibly powerful and you can watch them on your laptop, on your phone, uh, on a big screen, whatever, whenever, whenever you want to. I've, uh, I've watched them sitting on a bus going mm. before I went into a meeting in, uh, at work and uh, I just looked like any other unsociable bugger uh, <laughs> sitting on the bus looking at my phone. And that's, uh, so, so those videos, they're, they're tapping into the unconscious, subconscious. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is where your beliefs and your core values are, are sort of formed. Yeah, that's right. But it's not, it's not subliminal or anything okay. like that. It is, it is totally conscious what you're doing, but because of the heightened state of arousal that's achieved whilst you're looking at the video, it actually helps to tap it into the unconscious. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Mm. So it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah. And and so if we go back to, um, so you are you're now doing fly and fly out with Darwin uh, in, in your search and rescue role. Your your mental health or ill health is is getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, what what the what year are we talking now about? Uh, yeah, so that's uh, two thousand eleven. Okay. Uh, job came up in in brisbane and um and i said to careflight listen i don't want to leave you guys but two weeks on two weeks off is not the best thing for the family so if a job comes up in brisbane i I need to let you know that i'll i'll go for it um and a job came up in brisbane that i just happened to be almost perfectly qualified to do um and i was lucky enough to to get the job so that's where i'm now with queensland government air um, air rescue and um yes i've been working with those guys for whatever it is now eight eight years now and you're obviously enjoying that and, and uh... yeah i mean it, it has its challenges uh, you know government is an interesting place to work there's no question about that and um and i think uh i think government has a number of lessons that it could learn about people management um from 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 pretty much all industries and uh, and you still get to fly the chopper yeah so i'm still uh a, uh, a rescue pilot, uh, oh. an instructor, an examiner. Uh, so I bounce. We've got three bases: one in Archerfield in Brisbane, and then Townsville in Cairns. Uh, mm. And we also do a lot of our training in the simulator. So I put guys through their paces in the aircraft and in the simulator, um, night vision goggles or instrument flying or whatever. And and then when people are on leave, I I fill in the operational roster as well. So so what would your what would your what's your overarching sort of philosophy on on mental health or, or mental ill health, how are you being through the experience and obviously being able to come out the other end? Um, and, I, and I don't doubt that it's still an ongoing process, and, and that there's still things you're doing to help manage it. But uh, I mean, what do you think about the process? Um, and do you think it's getting better as far as being able to identify it, being able to talk about it, uh, and the tools available now to try and and, and help? reduce the impact uh, and control yeah the the short answer to that is it's absolutely getting better um there's there's more people talking about it from a lived experience perspective such as what i do um there's now you know conferences about it frontline mental health conference is one of half a dozen or so conferences around mental health in different areas or industries whether it's rural and remote or or whatever the case may be so there's now 
far more conversation, far more mainstream conversation around mental illness. Um, one of the, uh, but that said, there's still plenty of people out there who who don't know enough about mental illness. They don't know what the signs are. I can now look back easily in hindsight and see the mistakes I made and see where I was going off the rails. Um, but there are thousands of people out there who don't realise they're heading off the rails. Um, and another thing is just the general awareness that comes with, um, for the sorry, a general awareness for the, for the general population of understanding the prevalence of mental illness um, and that it really does not discriminate. It, mm. it, it doesn't care about race, religion, gender, sexual preference, income level, profession, yeah. doesn't care at all. I know, I know lawyers, um, engineers, builders, um, every, you know, entrepreneurs, every element of the spectrum of every industry that have people there with, with mental illness of some form. Um, and, and so it's that level of awareness of the prevalence of it that I think is still a big step that we need to take, generally speaking. Um, and then from there, um, the next step, which is going to be much harder to, uh, to achieve is the, uh, the way people are treated in the workplace uh, and socially um, for having mental illness. So it's, you know, so that's associated with stigma, but it's not stigma by and large. It's the, um, uh, it's the, the perception and the feeling that people have when they're talking with others or when they're dealing with others. And, and it was interesting, one of, the, um, one of the presenters there today looking at, uh, looking at police culture uh, talked about post-traumatic embitterment disorder, PTED, uh, which is essentially how, how individuals are being treated by the organisation after they, something happens. They get a phone call and that's thanks for your service. As of two days ago, you're terminated. Yeah, that's right. As Alan Sparks said there. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, you know, and, and that you know was 20 odd years ago. I'd like to think yeah. the police service has evolved some in that time. Yeah. Um, don't know, but uh, but but also yes, after a after a, an incident or a um, or an adverse finding, um, then people are you know to isolate people mm. is the wrong way to manage them and. And indeed, you know, I know for me, after I had my breakdown, how many phone calls did I get from my uh, my, my unit, my management? Zero. Mm. Zero. Now, if that doesn't make you feel like a failure, nothing mm. does, you know. It's definitely got to change, uh, and, and hopefully things are starting to change, as you said. I really like what the Swiss Aid uh, gentleman said yesterday, where he said, we spend 12 months training people to be soldiers but then we spend zero time training them to go back into civilian life or looking after them. Yep. Uh, it's just it's just so out of proportion. Yep. Um, but hopefully things are going to change with that. Tell me about the perception of... So in, in the story that you, you've been telling us, there was a certain amount of self-stigma uh, about you being able to feel like you could come out and say something. Mm. How did the perception versus the reality go? Because, I mean, it seems like talking going through the process you did felt like a weight had lifted off your shoulders and mm. just opening up felt really good to be part of the process yeah but obviously it took a while and 
and fortunately, you know, you didn't get to the extreme lengths that you were thinking of going to, uh, and extremely lucky uh, and thankful for that. But uh, but obviously, if, you, if you're looking at it saying, well, gee, I, I, I thought it was going to be really bad when I told everybody about this, but in actual fact, is, was there a difference with the perception versus reality? Yeah, yeah. Couldn't be any more different, I think. Um, I after I felt after I had my my breakdown um, and started the you know the recovery process, um, I just months earlier had been in Afghanistan, leading incredible men and women, doing flying missions, you name it. Um, it was almost a feeling that there was nothing I couldn't do, and uh, and now I was as I said, a, a inconsolable convulsing heap on the floor. And um, uh, and I, I felt that I had failed my country. That's honestly how, how big the failure felt and how deep the shame felt, that I'd failed the army, my family, everything, you name it. Um, and so ashamed that I, I knew some people would know something had happened to me, but I didn't know who knew what. Um, and so I actually asked my wife to keep it a secret. And so we, especially when I moved jobs, when in the civilian world, um, we constructed our lives professionally and personally to avoid any possibility of any discussion around anything to do with this. Um, and, and it wasn't until, um, so that was in 2008, it wasn't until in 2015 we were getting some business coaching and the business coach, a lady by the name of Michelle Duval, incredibly perceptive lady um, and incredibly talented coach. She could see that some things were just not quite adding up. And, uh, and so she, she pressed me on a, on a couple of questions and, and eventually I told her my secret. And, um, and she said, you know, have you accepted that you contemplated suicide? Have you accepted that you had a breakdown? And, um, and I said, no, I, I can't accept that because if I do, then I'm complicit in it happening and I don't feel I should take responsibility for it. And, um, and she said, what if acceptance didn't mean any of that? Acceptance just meant I don't like it, want it or condone it. It just is or it just was. And uh, I went, wow, I've never thought of acceptance that way before. I just hadn't. And, um, but I said, you know what, I can work with that. And so, um, the, the sentence before she asked me that question, um, she asked me to close my eyes and imagine if my story about contemplating suicide and having a breakdown was in social media. And I burst into tears. I, I said, no way, no way. I can't imagine that at all. Um, and, and this was twofold. When I say there's, there's one, the personal shame, and then the other side is my aircrew medical and the perception around jobs and being able to get a job. I had, I was full disclosure with CASA, so don't think that I've been hiding anything mm. from CASA um, in terms of my, my medical status and whatever. Mm. I was fully legal to fly. Um, but in terms of having it out there in the wider, very small aviation community, if I was looking to change jobs, that Kev Humphreys has a psych background. Um, that'd make life a bit challenging going for my next job. Um, and so, anyway, so she, we then got to the point, she said, well, 
if you if you think you can accept it, when do you think you can talk about it publicly? And so we set a timeline for three months. And I said, okay, I'll somehow work out how to do this in three months' time. Fast forward through that period, about two months, um, I was at a conference with a mentoring group, a fairly large mentoring group, about 150 to 200 people, oh. uh, business business mentoring group. Yep. And, um, and whilst we were there to learn about business, um, we very quickly, from this lady, Dintner Boholt, um, were realising that, that wealth was one-seventh of the equation and that she wanted to work on the other six parts just as much as the number one part. And um, so we're going through this, this session and, um, and for whatever reason, I just decided that today was the day I needed to talk about it. And, um, uh, and so, anyway, question, it was a reflection, exploration session. And um, anyway, so anyway, I, I put my hand up and picked up the mic and opened the floodgates. And um, and I don't know how long I spoke for, and I can't remember any of the words that I said. Um, all I knew is that leading up to that point, um, I honestly thought up until the time I opened my mouth, thought that the world was going to open up beneath me and swallow me whole if I spoke about this. Yeah. As I started speaking, I just lost all sense of anything around me just started talking, blabbering, crying my eyes out, absolutely crying my eyes out. And when I'd finished, the room erupted in applause and I had guys scrambling over chairs to get to me to give me a hug. And and I felt 20 kilos lighter and about 20 centimetres taller and I could not believe it. Oh crap, I'm still here. I, 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 I'm not dead, I didn't get swallowed up. And, and, and not only that, I'm getting embraced by all these people, some of whom I had no, never met before and, and others I'd now formed a good friendship with. Mm. Um, and, and the overwhelming theme was, mate, thank you. Your story's just like mine, I haven't got the balls to talk about it. Wow. Um, uh, and just again and again and again and 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 from that came wow why didn't i do this earlier this yeah. you know essentially this secret that we were keeping was actually keeping us yeah and uh and but it had to go through a massive experience like that to actually be able to to talk about it and uh and it took me a solid 24 hours or so to like the energy drain out of that was huge i was spent absolutely spent the next day i spent most of the next day just lying down um but my god so worth it yeah it's uh it's i mean that's really inspirational they say leaders lead the way and uh and pave the way for people to follow and and so obviously that's what you're doing at the moment as well with by talking about it even at conferences and being able to open up and share your story uh i've got no doubt that uh that's going to inspire uh, and encourage other people uh, with similar circumstances to be able to talk about a lot more because you're right i mean it's um we need to cultivate that culture uh, mm. of opening up and being able to say how you feel when you need to when you need to say it rather yeah. than bottling it up and trying to keep it within you and think oh 
they're all going to judge me. I'm, I'm worried about this or that. And uh, so the courage it must have taken to do that is is uh, exemplary. So uh, we commend you for that. Um, and also for your for your service. I mean, it's uh, for, for people that serve the country and uh, and do what they do. Uh, couldn't begin uh, to understand what that would be like. But um, but we obviously thank you for your service. What are some some parting shots you'd like to maybe just tell people? Is there any uh, you've shared many of, of some amazing uh, amazing stories and, and your journey uh, and some amazing insights? But do you have anything else uh, that you'd like to leave with the listeners uh, as we round up uh, the end of the conversation? Uh, yeah, uh, there's probably twenty or more, but I'll try to limit <laughs> it to to a couple. Um, and that is particularly as we're talking about frontline mental health, particularly as we're talking about that. And just, you know, statistically, it's still a very male dominated industry. It just is. Um, uh, blokes are not good at talking about or listening to their hearts. And, and although in 2008, it took me nine months to get back to work uh, to be functional again, the fact is, uh, it wasn't until 2015 where I started listening to my heart that I actually got the breakthrough recovery. So I got a functional recovery out of 2008, but I got a breakthrough recovery, a full holistic recovery in 2015. And that was because I connected my head with my heart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's been said before that the 18 inches from your head to your heart is the longest journey that a bloke will ever take. Uh, and it's wow. not an easy one at all, but, uh, but I tell you what, it's well worth traveling. So, you know, that, um, that is, that is certainly the big one, particularly, uh, for blokes, for frontline blokes. Um, we, and this applies to men and to women, but for some reason more so to men. Uh, and that is that we really wrap our purpose and our identity, or it's very easy for us to wrap our purpose and our identity um, in the uniform and the rank and the role that we wear and that we do. Um, but the fact is that we are not who we are because of what we do. We do what we do because of who we are. Mm. Subtle difference in words, mm. massive difference in outlook. And there is, uh, there is a different way to serve. Mm-hmm. There, I now serve by lifting humanity, by inspiring courageous and compassionate conversations. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways that I now serve. And uh, it's not too late to write the next chapter in the book. It's not too late to find your next piece of meaning or purpose. And it's okay to have more than one or two or three in your life. So there are other ways to find meaning and purpose. It's not wrapped up in the rank, the role, and the uniform. Mm. So they'd be the they'd be the top two, mate. Wow, mate, that's very powerful and uh, very insightful. I've uh, never heard that before, so it's, uh, I appreciate that, and uh, I'm sure our listeners will as well. How, how can people get in touch with you, Kev? Like, do you have uh, a way that they can easily touch base? Yeah, I've got a. Uh, a website yep. um, that's just my name, uh, all the W's, Kevin Humphreys, that's K E V I N H U M P H R E Y S 
www.ltd.com.au. So you get on there, you'll be able to contact me through there. And I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. And what sort of things are you doing at the moment? Obviously speaking. Um... Uh, yeah, so uh, day job is still flying the, the rescue helicopter and instructing, yep. examining there. Uh, I provide uh, keynote speeches and other, other speeches uh, to businesses and individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as that, we also uh, do some work with disability housing as well, which is a, a, another conversation entirely. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we've got some some disability houses there that we provide. So sounds like you certainly uh, put your fingers in some pies, and and uh, and it's great to see you uh, see you leading the way in what you're doing, and and getting out there and having these conversations and sharing your journey. Uh, we can learn so much from it, and we appreciate that and the vulnerability you put yourself in to come on the show. So thanks very much, uh, and keep it up. Uh, you're welcome. Mate. Thanks, thanks very much for having me. Thanks, man. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.